1978, Dolores Mata was doing the unthinkable, living away from home. To be fair, her little house on Loomis Street was only one street away from her parents, who lived in a tiny two-bedroom home in what was then a tight-knit Hispanic pocket of Fort Collins's Old Town neighborhood. Dolores was the third youngest then, one of ten Mata siblings, and tight-knit doesn't even begin to describe this family. She said back then, your friends were your family. The Mata children, you see, weren't allowed to go just anywhere. There were rules. And one unwritten one was that you didn't move out of the house. But in the late 70s, that's what Dolores did. And soon, her youngest sister, the baby of the family, Rosemary, wanted to move out too. Rosemary was young, a couple years out of high school, and obsessed with discos and John Travolta and Saturday Night Fever. She was joined at the hip with one of her other sisters, the second youngest in the family, Julia. They went everywhere together, did everything together. But Rosemary was the one who moved out. And I remember telling mom, I said, Rose, she said to me, Rosemary wants to move out. What do you think? I said, Mom, let her go. I moved out and nothing's happened to me. I said, Mom, I want to take care of her. Mm-hmm. Nothing's going to happen to her. And then she gets murdered. I've carried that shit for years. When I said Rosemary and Julie did everything together, I meant it, even up until the very end. You see, in the early morning hours of April 29th, 1978, a group of hunters were driving through a desolate stretch of Larimer County's Buckhorn Canyon, west of Fort Collins, and they noticed something on either side of the road. They reported it immediately around five in the morning, to the county sheriff's office. Soon, the narrow dirt road swarmed with investigators and a Coloradoan photographer. And the next morning, the people of Fort Collins unrolled their morning papers to be greeted with the grisly news. Two local women murdered, the headline read, bodies found on rural roadside. It was Rosemary and Julie Rosemary was 21, Julie just 24, a young mom with a toddler at home. In the ensuing newspaper articles, reporters clawed for any new detail. Questions abounded. How could this happen? Why Rosemary and Julie? Who could have done this? A lot has happened since that initial early morning discovery, including a conviction. But 40 years later, one thing hasn't changed. There are still so many questions. I'm Erin Udell, and you're listening to The Way It Was, Episode 14, Inside the Mata Murders.
That voice you just heard in the intro to this episode is Dolores Mata, and she was the first person I reached out to as I was considering revisiting the murders of her two sisters. I'd heard about the Mata murders, as they were known around town, off and on for years, and I penciled it in my calendar to take a look at the case at the beginning of this year, with the 40th anniversary nearing on April 29th. Dolores's name was sprinkled in several newspaper articles about Rosemary and Julia. Right after their deaths, she spoke of how kind and gentle they were, how they were always together, and how they dearly loved to laugh. Then, more than a decade later, she was quoted in a different article, part of a series written by Coloradoan reporter Ronald Fitton. In 1989, he too revisited the case. A lot of things had happened in those 11 years, from 1978 to 1989. The Mata murder investigation had involved sketches of suspects, a clay bust of one even, out-of-state leads, questions about a possible serial killer, hypnosis, a dead sheriff, two dismissed trials, two acquittals, a first-degree murder conviction, a successful appeal of that conviction, shattered families, and a fractured Fort Collins community. Don't worry, I'll get to all of that. But when I first read Ronald Fitton's stories from 1989, I was most surprised to learn that, though a man sat in prison for these murders, so many people involved with the case still considered it unresolved. For Dolores, some members of her family, and some people within local law enforcement, it was unresolved because only one man was in prison, when she says there should have been more. For the man ultimately convicted of the crime, Santos Romero, as well as some area attorneys and community members, the case was unresolved because, well, he claims he didn't do it. That his words were twisted during interviews, that he was interviewed under hypnosis and given immunity before it was yanked away. That he was in prison for a crime he didn't commit. I wanted to know if people still felt these ways, if the community was still divided because of it. I wanted to learn more about Rosemary and Julia, about their friends, their quirky nicknames, their John Travolta obsessions. I wanted to, these 40 years later, unpack a case that had as many twists and turns as the country road Rosemary and Julie were found on that morning. And I knew I had to start with Dolores. Okay. Hmm? Um, okay, so Dolores, we are, we are recording. Um, and I have some questions for you, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, Dolores and I first started chatting through messages online. So when I met her in the end of February, I didn't know what to expect. And I was greeted with this tiny, feisty woman, not even five feet tall, with jet black hair and so, so much passion. The murders of Rosemary and Julie affected her so deeply, and in different ways than the rest of her family. She became obsessed with finding out what happened to them. Sitting at her kitchen table, she handed me folder after folder, news clipping after news clipping. She had saved everything. And she answered all of my questions with this unexpected candor and some cuss words, which she continuously apologized for. You see, it's hard for her to talk about Rosa and Julia, as she calls them, 40 years later. But a smile does come to her face when I ask her what they were like. 
personality-wise? Oh, those two. I'll tell you, one time, okay, we're sitting at the house on Luma Street, and we had this uh, recliner that would rock back and forth. And I remember we're sitting there, and we always had uh, uh, Julie, Rosemary, and my nephew, Sal. All their birthdays were in February, so we would always have a party to celebrate all three together. So we're getting ready for this party. And so I'm on the rocking chair, and I am just seeing how far it's going to go. I tipped over. The stupid thing fell on top of me. And Rosemary and Julia are in the kitchen. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm not going to even say nothing. But now I can't get out of that. <laughs> so I'm saying, help me, Rosie, uh, Julie. So they finally come into the living room, and they see that recliner on top of me. You think they're going to help me? No. They are laughing so hard they can't move the recliner off of me. Oh my God. They're trying. Anyway, they finally, before I was going to die, <laughs> both of them took that stupid recliner off of me. And I said, you know, you better not tell anybody about this. Well, when everybody came over for the party that night, they were telling them what happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> Dolores had more little stories like this, and they make her sisters sound so full of life. After all, they were at the beginning of their lives. Rosemary, like I said earlier, was in this new chapter, living away from home. And Julie was divorced and living at home with her parents, helping her mom around the house as she recovered from a lung cancer diagnosis. She had a two-year-old daughter, Magdalena, or Maggie, who she adored. Dolores said Julia was so, so happy being a mom. Um, so what kind of stories did you grow up with about your mom and, and what kind of person did you learn that she was? Um, that she was a wonderful person. Always loved to laugh, that she laughed, was laughing all the time. That's Maggie, sitting at Dolores' kitchen table among the news clippings and old family photos. She's 42 now and has two kids of her own. Um, one particular story I remember was that I believe she had a job interview for CSU, and um, she, for some reason she had me with me, or for some reason I was with her. And when she closed the door, she closed me in the car and locked me in the in the car. And she had to run home to get the keys to get me out. <laughs> Maggie says she doesn't have any of her own memories of her mom. She was too young. But she does remember a little bit right after the murders when she was temporarily staying with one of her aunts before her dad could come get her. Um, I do always remember living, uh, being at my Aunt Josie's house um, until I wasn't. And I remember I would go to bed and I wouldn't take my shoes off. I'd sleep with my shoes because I, I was waiting for my mom to come get me because I couldn't understand mm-hmm. that she wasn't coming back to get me. In an instant, on April 29th, 1978, Maggie's life had changed. The entire Mata families did. Okay, because Rosemary didn't come home that night. We were living on Lumisha, and I thought, okay. And my clock fell above the fireplace, and it broke. It was 3 o'clock in the morning. I go over to my mom's house on Wickham Street, and I said, hey, Mom, uh, is Julie here? Is Rosa here? She goes, no. Why? I said, oh, They went out to breakfast. They told me to meet him here. Dolores said this was early, around 7 or 8 in the morning, 
and her mom was working in the front yard. Still unsure of where her sisters were, she lied about them probably having gone off to breakfast so her mom wouldn't be worried. But right around that same time, some detectives pulled up in front of the house. So I walked to the front of the house and I said, can I help you? And they said, do you know Rosemary and Julia? And I said, I do. I said, I've been looking for them. I said, where are they? I said, because I'm going to kick their asses because they should have been home last night. And uh, the detective said, we don't know who the other one is, but we found the driver's license of one of them. In a, I don't know if he said Julia or Rosemary. And I said, what? He said, they found her in the canyon. She was murdered. And I mean, I just went into shock. Julie had been identified first. And then, after talking to the family, detectives determined the second woman was Rosemary. That Friday night, the two sisters had gone to the Northern Hotel in Old Town. Then it had a restaurant and a bar and a dance floor. They were seen there leaving around one in the morning. And as you know, they were found up Buckhorn Canyon around five. Julie laid face down on one side of the road, fully clothed. Rosemary was on the other side, face up. It was unconfirmed if she'd been sexually assaulted, but she had been stripped of all of her clothing, except for a small top. The cause of death would be released a week later. Both sisters died of an air embolism in their hearts, caused by severe head injuries. They had been bludgeoned to death, with one or more than one large rock. The damage to their heads and faces was so extensive, they were hardly recognizable. Things moved fast from there, and Dolores said one of her brothers rushed over to their parents' house that morning. Their father, a former field worker, now suffered from a heart problem, and their mother's health was fragile as well. So they had the detectives call paramedics to the scene just in case anything happened, and they told them. And uh, the night before, I had uh, a dream that there was a tornado that had come through the neighborhood. And it was two white tornadoes came through the neighborhood. And in my dream, uh, I saw all of us are running down into the basement. And uh, I saw, I think it's mom. Before they close the door, she comes running down the stairs just before the tornado hit. And she falls into my dad's arms. I think it was mom. And she falls, you know, and he catches her. So, paramedics are there. His mom, his dad. They, uh, Stephen had to interpret. And he said, uh, they found Rosemary and Julie. They were murdered in the canyon. My mom passes out and my dad catches her. That's what I saw in my dream. So Dolores' parents are taken to the hospital, just to be careful. And Dolores turns to the detectives. So the investigator is still there, and I said, uh, let's go. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in shock. I'm not crying or anything. I said, let's go. And I said to the investigators, I said, could you stop at the liquor store and get me a bottle of whiskey or whatever? I don't know what I asked them for. I just remember that. 
Well, now I only drink tequila, but like, who knows what I asked for. <laughs> so they did. And they got me, we went to that Aggie Liquors, and they bought me a bottle. I don't know what it was. And I remember drinking, just drinking half of that. And then they said, are you okay? I said, yeah, I'm good. And they said, you don't want to cry? I said, no, no, I'm, I'm not going to cry. I want to know what happened here. And I'm, I was, I want to know what's going on here. This seems to be a theme throughout this tragic story. Each Mata family member dealt with the grief in their own way. And Dolores found comfort in investigating. She had this hunger for answers. She still does. Maggie says that most of her family doesn't talk about what happened to Rosemary and Julie. Everyone except for Dolores. Like I said earlier, she thinks more men should be imprisoned for her sister's deaths. She says there's no way only one person could have done what was done to her two sisters. She has her theories. And so did a man named Neil Compton. I've heard Compton described as larger than life, a straight shooter with a shock of white hair. At the time of Julie and Rosemary's murders, Compton was Larimer County Sheriff's chief of investigations. And like Dolores, he would later describe this investigation to a reporter as all-consuming. Compton was my key to figuring out what the investigation looked like in those early days, and I was so excited trying to track him down. And after a long search, I finally found his obituary. Neil Compton had died a decade ago, in 2007, from ALS. I found one of his daughters, but she couldn't remember the case, and the family had left Colorado in the late 70s. It had just been so, so long ago. So I was at my official first dead end in this story. Until a former reporter named Liam Rooney walked into our newsroom. I had found Liam online after hearing his name from a few people. This case consumed him as well, but we'll get to that later. What he'd brought me blew me away. As a reporter in the late 70s and early 80s, Rooney had recorded all of his interviews on cassette tapes. And then, even after he stopped being a reporter, he kept them, filed them away, and he brought them to me. One of the tapes was labeled Neil Compton. Hello. Hi, Neil. Yeah. This is Liam Rooney in Fort Collins. Yeah. How you doing? Okay. I guess Terry probably told you I'd talked to him uh, about the Mata case. Yeah. The interview was done in the early 80s, a few years after the actual crime, and Compton had since left Colorado. But here's what he had to say about the first 24 hours of the Mata investigation. Of any investigation, really. Strategy when we got back off of the hill. Obviously, the strategy was to uh, trace the victim in the past 24 hours. Who they'd been with, where they were who had seen them, who had last seen them. Uh-huh. And to assign teams of investigators to do that, which was done. 
The quality of that recording is a little iffy. Remember, it's almost 40 years old. But if you couldn't make that out, Compton was saying that a team of investigators went about tracking Rosemary and Julie's final night in Fort Collins, where they were, who they'd been seen with, and who they were last seen with. I'll get to that. The Sheriff's Department and Colorado Bureau of Investigation, the CBI, also had physical evidence to comb through. According to court testimony, four years later, investigators with both agencies descended on Buckhorn Canyon, photographing the scene and shoe impressions and tire marks. They photographed the bodies, transported them to the morgue, removed their clothes and personal effects, and packaged them as evidence, sending them to CBI's lab. They also did rape kits on both sisters, collecting swabs and fingernail scrapings. And they cataloged the state that Rosemary and Julie were found in, which was actually pretty different. You see, Julie had been found with all of her clothes on, according to investigators' testimony. There had seemingly been no attempt to remove her jacket or her sweater, her slacks, her shoes. Rosemary, as I said earlier, was found stripped of almost everything. And Rosemary and Julie's injuries were similar, but different as well. While they were both bludgeoned with rocks or a rock, Julia had one or two fatal wounds to her head and face. Rosemary, on the other hand, had a lot. It appears, according to investigators, that she was continually beaten, even after she had died. Investigators started piecing together this physical evidence, and back in Fort Collins, they started asking questions. What you do is you tighten up your victims and you start finding out who your victims are as much as you can about your victims on a whodunit homicide. Your very best probability of identifying the perpetrator is to find out who the, the victims really are, every one of their associates, etc., etc., what their behavior patterns are, what they're likely to do and not likely to do. What I've been told pretty consistently is that Rosemary and Julia were friendly, but cautious. One could even say distrusting. Remember, they'd been raised in this tight, strict, and you could probably say sheltered, Catholic household. One coworker of Rosemary's told the Coloradoan that Rosemary wouldn't even walk across the street to Burger King alone during her work lunch breaks. She'd always get someone to go with her. The general consensus was that they wouldn't have gotten into a car with someone they didn't know or didn't trust. One other thing Dolores mentioned was that Rosemary and Julia had driven themselves in a family member's car to the Northern Hotel's dance club that night. And in the morning after their bodies were found, their car was found as well, still right outside of the Northern, parked on the side of the building and looking a little odd. And so they take me to the car, which is on the side. And I said, let me see. And so I looked in the window, and the seat is pulled all the way back. And who would have been driving the car? Uh, Julie. Julie. And how, yeah. how tall was she? I'm 4'11", Julie and I. Well, she was 4'10". Okay. So she needed two pillows to sit to drive Phillips, the, the Dodge Demon. We call it the Duster. Uh, and the seat had to be all the way up front. Not only that, there was Coors cans in the back. We don't drink, of course. We never drink that shit. So I'm like, look at the back seat. It's like, 
the invest the detectives they said, What's going on? I said, They don't drink course. We don't drink course. Anyway, I said, and the seats pulled all the way back. Rosemary, I mean Julie was not driving this car. And I said to the detectives, Well you guys checked for prints? And they said, No, we haven't done that. I said, um, I think you guys need to check for prints because Julie wasn't driving this car and they don't uh, drink uh, Coors. I said, I think you need to check uh, all these cans and check for fingerprints. So Dolores said she and one of her brothers-in-law drove the car back to the Mata's parents' house and she went to tell detectives where the car was so they could lift prints from it. But before that could happen, Dolores said her brother-in-law cleaned it there would be no way of knowing who else could have been in their car that night. I want to jump in here really quickly and mention something. I know I've talked about evidence being collected, bagged, and sent off to labs, of swabs and fingernail scrapings, but I just want to remind everyone that this happened in 1978, and there was no DNA testing as we know it now. Back then, there was very early hair analysis to see if strands matched. There were fingerprints and forensic serology, which would let you identify bodily fluids and blood types. But strike all of the other things you think you know from watching CSI. It was not like that. Compton said in his interview with Liam that back then, your best bet of solving a whodunit homicide was getting information from the public. And one person that helped the investigation in those early days was a friend of the Mata sisters, a man named Marty. He told investigators he was there at the Northern that night, and he saw Rosemary and Julie leaving around 1 a.m. with a man he didn't know. A man with a supposedly brand new brown two-toned Chevy Malibu classic coupe with five-spoke mag wheels, a car that is sure to stand out. Soon, the sheriff's office had released a sketch of a man, describing him as six foot two, clean shaven with black hair and Native American features. About two weeks after that, Compton told the newspaper that they had found a man matching that description and cleared him. They were now, he said, looking for a man described as Hispanic or white, around 23 or 24 years old, with black or brown hair. He weighed 150 to 170 pounds, and was around 5'9 to 6 feet tall. A sketch was drawn out of this new suspect, and a clay bust was molded in his likeness. It was all over the Coloradoans' front page. But days went by, then weeks, then months, and no suspect was arrested. Compton likened the suspect in the sketch, the man Rosemary and Julie were said to have driven off with that night, to a phantom. almost like a sand that they just disappeared from the bar into a car. Eight months would pass from that gloomy April morning in 1978. Newspaper headlines made it sound like investigators were close, that new evidence had developed, that there would hopefully be some closure to this community's open wound. And that closure came, it seemed, in early January 1979. In a big banner headline on the front page of the Coloradoan, 
It read, Murder Suspect Arrested. Man held in connection with Mata slayings. Finally, local women wouldn't have to live in fear. The Matas could get justice. It was over, right? As it turned out, it was only just beginning. Next time, on The Way It Was, Episode 15, Inside the Mata Murders, Part 2. I have to warn you, what, what makes you crazy about this case is then you get pulled in and you start trying to solve it yourself. You know, you got a guy coming in and say, my brother did it, off you go. You know, case done, right? Mm-hmm. All done, all done here. Because what happened during that case is anybody who was alleged to be involved or was peripherally involved, they were brought in and interrogated. And we're told that either you tell us what we want to know or we're going to charge you. And they did. Friday night before I was to be sworn in on Tuesday, I got a phone call that Sheriff Watson was interrogating a suspect in the Mata murders had stepped outside his office and dropped dead of a heart attack. And little did I know, the whole background of it was, was they were hypnotizing witnesses. You know, everybody knows Sanos is talking about the Mata case, and they also know he doesn't know anything. They just think that Sanos is talking crazy like he always does about everything. He wanted some garbage bags to cut up some bodies, quote unquote. He basically was convicted on my testimony was I got a call from a person west of Loveland out on West First Street who said, Sheriff, there's a bunch of documents in this shed of mine. I had asked them how things went. They said that they were both going to meet him on Friday and they were going to go out. And uh, that was the night they were murdered. Physical evidence does not lie. It stays the same. Mm -hmm. It told a story. It told a story that this was one person. Four years later, I'm still not married. I still don't have kids. My goal is to get that guy. Dear Aaron Udell, this is from him.